Turn to John chapter 16 and uh, the words of verse 7. John 16 and verse 7. It is good for that I go away, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. A dark shadow hangs over these pages of John's Gospel at this point. The Lord is leaving them and going back to his Father. The disciples are distraught. They are not going to see him again or hear his teaching or have him walk with them. Those many months he has been with them and led and taught, protected, inspired them. And now he says they are to see him no longer. And it's for them inexplicable. He is a young man in the full vigor of his manhood. And he speaks in those mysterious terms of going back to his father and then not being seen. And then a little while, and he will be seen. And what do these riddles, these figures of speech, what do they mean? In John 14 we are told that they were troubled. Let not your hearts be distraught. Don't be so distressed. And yet, that was still their mood. They are still troubled and still distressed. He had told them then in John 14, I'm going, he said, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to secure it and prepare it for you by my own presence. And so believe in God and his purpose, and believe in me and who I am. Let not your heart be troubled. And yet, glorious though those words were, they are still distraught and still troubled. And so he turns again to the same theme, trying to comfort those confused and distressed men. And he gives them this amazing comfort. In some ways, it only exacerbates their pain. It is good for you that I'm going away. And he adds, unless I go, the counselor will not come to you. And I want this morning for a moment to explore with you some of the Lord's teaching in this great passage with regard to the Holy Spirit. We have so neglected him. He's been compared to a floodlight who illuminates the glory of the Lord Jesus, but is himself 
always out of sight. Now Jesus didn't leave him out of sight. Jesus himself cast his own light on the Spirit. And we owe him so much. And I want them to return to him for a moment this morning. What does he mean that uh, unless he goes away, the Spirit uh, will not come? There is an order in our own salvation at the level of our own experience. We are born again and then justified and then sanctified and then glorified. And likewise, in God's order of redemption, there is an order. We can't have Pentecost before Calvary, because the Spirit's mission rests on the mission of the Son, and it depends upon that mission for its completion. And only as a consequence of the atonement wrought by Christ on the cross, can the Holy Spirit come. The disciples at this point don't see that, don't understand it, but we must see it, that Pentecost does depend on Calvary. First, our sins are atoned for, and we are reconciled to God, and then the Spirit comes, because there is this indispensable link uh, between atonement and transformation. It's sometimes objected to our view of the cross that it is so external, an imputation of righteousness that leaves us ourselves unchanged inwardly in the core of our being. But that's for the Bible's order. We have both the objective atonement that covers my sin and the inward transformation which that atonement has secured. Because the Spirit's work is the purchase of Calvary. It is the Father's reward for the obedience of his own son. And so the Lord is saying, first of all, I must go to my father, and I must go by way of the cross to make the sacrifice as the Lamb of God to bears the sin of the world. And I have a promise that when I finish this work, then the counselor, uh, he will come. In Galatians uh, 3, Paul speaks of Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse in our place. And yet that experience of accursedness is not an end in itself, he says. Instead, he is accursed and redeems us so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, and we, says, receive the Spirit through faith. 
And so we have this marvelous link between the cross and Pentecost, between outward atonement and inward transformation. Wherever there is redemption or the curse has been, has been lifted, there is this inward transforming ministry, this remarkable empowerment by God, the Holy Spirit. All the redeemed have this mighty force living within them, God's Holy Spirit. And Jesus then has this other money statement, it is good for you that I go away. And they must have blinked. How could this be uh, good for them? And the Lord is telling us this remarkable thing, that it would be better for you after I go. And he's saying to us this morning that we have it better than the disciples had when the Lord was with them on this earth. You know, so often we uh, say to ourselves, Oh, I wish I'd been there when he walked through Galilee, and I wish I'd seen him. How marvelous that must have been. And of course, in many ways it was. And yet the Lord is saying, you will have it better after I go. And we today have it better than they had it when they walked with him by the lake of Tiberias. We have it better. And why so? Because there was one clear limitation with regard to that earlier form of the Lord's presence with them. While on earth he inhabited a human body which was limited as to space in one place at one time and not in another place. When in Galilee he wasn't in Jerusalem, when in Nazareth he wasn't in Capernaum, and sometimes uh, some went with him and some didn't, for example, to Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, to get Gethsemane again, Peter, James, and John, but not the others. There was a spatial and geographic limitation on his presence. Just as in the Old Testament days, uh, the temple was the symbolic location of God's presence. And you have those great psalms of ascent when the pilgrims went up to the temple because that's where God was. And from the extremes uh, of, the, of the country, they made their way by pilgrimage to where God was. And so Jesus, yes, he dwelt among us, but only one place at one time. And now, it is good for you that I go away because the counselor, he will come and he will not be circumscribed or limited to one location. And how glorious that is. And how intimate that presence of the Spirit is with us as believers in this great New Testament age.
The Lord uses three very simple propositions to define for us the nature of his presence with us individually. He will be in you, he said, in you. And he'll be with you. And he'll be beside you. And he's saying to us, to each and every one, to the most fragile, to the most doubting, to the youngest, the most immature, to the one most conscious of personal failure, you never walk alone. He is always with you. He is always in you, always beside you, always within shouting distance. Or take that great image that Paul uses again. Your bodies, he says, are temples of the Holy Spirit. That's where he dwells. In us, our bodies as his temples. We don't need to go on pilgrimage to find the Spirit, not in Jerusalem, not to Mecca, but simply here, in this marvelous intimacy of the presence of God's Spirit in us as his living temples. That's how close he is to us this morning. It is the most amazing thing, it often strikes me, in my class at college, it's a small class, small room. And yet one is always conscious, or one reminds oneself that here, Christ and his Spirit is present. And here today, he is with us. And with us because each one of us, who has faith in him, and is a member of his body, has brought Christ with her into this worship this morning. We are a great aggregate of divine presences, a critical, potentially explosive mass of the presences of God's Holy Spirit. And so he says, if I don't go, then he the paraclete would come. And again, it is good for you, it's glorious for you that I be because there is something better than my presence. And then we ask, in what capacity does he come? For what purpose? For what ministry? And there are two dimensions to it in this particular context. One is, first of all, his ministry to the world. He will convict the world. He is here as a paraclete. And I, I do very much want you to take that uh, simple word with you. It's not difficult to pronounce. The paraclete. It simply means by derivation uh, someone called beside us or someone engaged and commissioned to be beside you. One of its fundamental meanings is advocate and 
God has commissioned and engaged this advocate to serve the church. And so, as we go on a mission into the world, because the Lord says in the chapter as well, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. But Lord, you're not going with us. So you've said, and you've given us this impossible mission. This gospel of the world thinks so absurd. And to preach it to those who are blind and spiritually dead, and who by instinct we reject all this gospel and all your son stands for, what can we do in the face of such a world? Ah, but he says the Spirit, the Advocate, he will be my Advocate. And when you go to bear witness to me, then he says he will go. You will testify, and he will use your witness as my advocate. And he will convict the world. He will convict the world of its need. He will vindicate me as the risen Lord who has gone back to his Father. He will convict the world of rectitude, righteousness, and in other words, accountability to God. He will convict. Lord, the mission is hopeless. Preaching to the dead and to the apathetic and the aggressively hostile. I know, he says, but you don't go alone. The Spirit goes with this distinctive mission to the world, not only to the church, but to convict the world. Because the world is our mission field. Go to all the nations. Go to every creature. And we never, never, never go alone. That's the glory of it. Missionaries today, in all kinds of lonely and dangerous situations. They may be in some hostile Islamic country, some hostile Hindu or Buddhist country, some hostile secular society. They may be in a community where they are complete outsiders in the whole culture, viewed with suspicion. And they may have been there in some cases for years and seen no encouragement and sometimes tempted to feel so lonely. And yet what? The paraclete, that advocate, goes with them, is always beside them, is always near. We today have the same mission. You in this great city with its great Puritan past with its great commitment to the market economy and all its pluses and all its minuses 
And maybe we too feel helpless in the face of the forces of apathy and hostility ranged against us. Who will convict the city? The Lord is saying to us, the advocate will. I will send him and he will convict London of sin, righteousness and judgment. It's no cop-out. It's no excuse for inactivity or non-evangelism on our part. It's in the context of our going. Go, he says, and I'm with you all the days to the end of the age. But then there is a second ministry of Paraclete in the hearts of believers. And I want just to develop that for a moment. The one called beside you, whom God has delegated and God has sent to be with you and in you all the days. And what is it that he does as a paraclete? Our counselor, our encouragement, or in the most comprehensive sense, our helper, who is always present, a very present help in every hour of need. What does he do? I can only itemize the key points this morning briefly. Jesus says he will glorify me. And where does he do that? He does it in your heart. He gives you not only a cognitive information or grasp of who Jesus was and what he did, but he shows you the beauty of Jesus. He shows you Jesus as he sees him himself. And the Spirit shares with you his own vision and his own evaluation of Jesus. The Spirit so loves him. The Spirit so adores him. The Spirit is so enthralled with him. The Spirit who surveys the whole cosmos in all its extent and all its beauty, that spirit thinks that Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the most glorious being in the whole range of being throughout this vast cosmos. And he shows his people inwardly that mission of Jesus, a beauty that makes us desire him. Sometime, somewhere, we have perhaps all of us faced, if only briefly, a world from which Christ has been eliminated. And it was so, so dark, because all the lights, all the light had gone out. 
and all the beauty and all the meaning had gone out. The Spirit has made Christ emotionally and affectively indispensable to believers. He will glorify me. And then again this. The paraclete comes as a spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The assurance that God loves us. This incredible fact that we who are so unlovable are yet God's beloved children. I mentioned last night briefly the importance to Luther and Calvin of certainty and above all of certainty here to know who is our father to know that we are God's children and God hasn't left us to ascertaining that by ticking boxes and saying yes I have that mark and I have this mark and I have that other mark because as one great divine said all your marks will leave you in the dark but the Holy Spirit comes that spirit who in the heart of Jesus said Abba Father he comes into your heart and he gives us this certainty, this assurance that you, we, I, you are God's children and as children, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I beg you, don't leave it an open question because I can say with confidence that our usefulness is limited seriously by any doubt on this great question. We must be sure here that we are right with God, that we are God's children, that I can go and say, My Abba, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, to know that God loves us with that great assurance and that great love. And it's this Spirit also who empowers us for service. He gives the gifts that we need for our own place in the body of Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from God the Father of lights, even those in the secular world come from him. But in the body, each one of us, each one of you has her own place. And that ministry that nobody in the whole world or in the whole of history, the whole of time, can fulfill but you. And for that ministry, you need empowerment. You need the gifts that God's Spirit alone can give. 
And I'll just mention perhaps one more point, and that is that it is he who helps us cope with emergencies. And they come all kinds of unforeseen crises. And sometimes our backs are to the wall, and sometimes we say we can't cope. And you know, it's so important to be able to cope with not coping. And to assure ourselves, well, even Jesus in Gethsemane was close to that point. Abba, not this cup, not through that door, not down that road, and his whole being shrunk from it, even though he knew it was God's will. But he had said to his disciples, they will, he says, haul you before governors and kings and magistrates. But he says, don't try to prepare speeches for those emerges because you don't now know how they will present. What would I do if? What formula? No, he says, not formulae but dependence on God's Spirit. It will be taught you in that hour what to speak. How wonderful that is, that when the unforeseen, when the providence of God becomes sometimes a virtual tsunami, that then the paraclete, the commissioned, authorized helper is there by your side. I want to close by reminding you of what perhaps we tend to forget and what I should have mentioned perhaps even earlier on. The Spirit is a person. Not simply a force. Not an energy. Not a wind. Not a fuel. Not a powerhouse. Not a current but a person with a mind, a will, a decision-maker, someone who knows, someone who cares, someone who loves you, who loves God the Father, loves God the Son, loves all God's people, loves you with a love you can begin to imagine. And we walk with him, and we keep in step with him, in many ways, odd though it sounds, I think my favorite Holy Spirit text is one from Ephesians 3. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. In some ways, the whole of what is most precious about him is in that great director. Because it's saying to us, remember how sensitive he is and how easily he is hurt. He cares so much. He loves you so much. Walk carefully 
lest you hurt him. You know, in our human relationships, love is so careful not to hurt the other person. And sometimes we do what we don't want to do, and sometimes even what we may think it is not right to do, because we do not want to hurt the person we love. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember, he is with you, in you, beside you. You are never out of his sight. And every time we deviate from his way and reject his guidance, we not only hurt consciences, but we grieve this most lovely, lovable, beautiful of all persons, God, the Holy Spirit. May God help us to walk with him in daily fellowship and companionship. Let's pray.